Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. American culture is ubiquitous across the globe. It travels to different social contexts and is consumed by international populations. But the relationship between American culture and the meanings attached to the United States change over time. During the 20th century, the American century, American culture generally... American culture is ubiquitous across the globe. It travels to different social contexts and is consumed by international populations. But the relationship between American culture and the meanings attached to the United States change over time. During the 20th century, the American century, American culture generally aided in the positive global perception of U.S. policies and governance. And after the American century, the ends of U.S. culture in the Middle East, Brian Edwards demonstrates how this relationship altered in recent decades. Technological innovation and the emergence of the digital age have drastically changed the nature of cultural circulation and production. Edwards explores the innovative play between global culture and local subjects in Egypt, Iran, and Morocco. He explores the exchange and interpretations between multiple publics that engage culture situated within various assumptions and social expectations. What he shows is that local cultural production often creates the ends of circulation, which are not always visible to an American audience. In our conversation, we discuss the relationship between culture and politics, Egyptian fiction and graphic novels, Iranian directors Askar Varhadi and Abbas Kirastami, Shrek, digital piracy, Moroccan film controversies, the logics of film production, interpreting audiences, American Orientalism in Television, Literature, and Ben Affleck's Argo. I'm one of your co-hosts, Christian Peterson, and thanks again for listening to New Books in Islamic Studies. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Brian Edwards about his great new book, After the American Century. Welcome, Brian. Thanks for joining us on New Books in Islamic Studies. How are you doing? Hi, Christian. Thanks for having me. Yeah, so this this book, After the American Century, The Ends of U.S. Culture in the Middle East, uh, was really fascinating. It's uh, super exciting to read this kind of academic book because you bring in lots of different kind of uh, genres of writing, which uh, I think, for at least for me as a reader, uh, kept me really engaged and kind of wanting to learn more. And uh, But you also really offer a lot of, I think, theoretical kind of methodological nuggets that I think uh, will be useful for lots of people. So thanks for for writing a great book. Well, thank, thanks for the kind words. It's a, it, was a, it was in process for a while, so uh, uh, I'm, I'm happy to have the chance to talk about different aspects of it. Sure. Now, um, it, it's always our tradition to, to start with a little bit about our authors. So could you tell us a little bit about um, your background, maybe your part of your training? Um, what, what brought you to the study of Muslim societies? Well, that's a great question. I think I have an unusual um, route to writing this book and the work that I'm doing now. Uh, I, this, you know, I went to graduate school in the 90s, um, and I 
pursued a PhD in American studies, which I'm proud to say. Uh, I started by writing a dissertation that led me in this direction, um, which was conceived of really in the wake of the first Gulf War. Um, the when I, you know, was starting to go into an American studies program, the at which I did at Yale. The richness of American studies, I thought, was the kind of collision of different disciplines, particularly literature and history and uh, a sort of social social sciences uh, approach. Um, I in the mid 90s, I was um, looking for. Well, actually, I should say when I got when I first got into graduate school, uh, it was in the wake of the Gulf War or the 1991 Gulf War. Uh, I was living in New York be between college and graduate school and and kind of dismayed by the way that war was being portrayed in the media uh, and in uh, especially in TV and broadcast media. Um, I hadn't yet studied the region. I had barely been to it. Um, and and there a couple of things happened at the same time. There was that military conflict and the way it was reported uh, on the one hand. And this, on the other hand, there was the release of the Bertolucci's film, The Sheltering Sky, which um, was based on Paul Bowles' 1949 novel. It took them almost it took 40 years for that to be made into a film. Uh, it, it brought to another generation um, attention to a novel that for many people was kind of a version of American Orientalism. For others, uh, it was, um, you know, kind of the last gasp uh, or, or uh, of a sort of colonial um, expatriation. Um, it also spurred on a lot of cultural uh, attention for another generation of thinking about North Africa in exactly those sort of Orientalist ways that we are familiar with as scholars from previous decades. In any case, those two things came together, and I, I was sort of casting about looking for a project, went to graduate school thinking I was going to write about the collision of literature and architecture and architectural space. Um, of course, this is in the in the 90s. We were starting to discover as scholars what it meant to think about globalization in this in the decade after the end of the Cold War. What we thought the end of the Cold War um, started to be work um, thinking about nationalism in different sorts of ways, national identity. Of course, work by Benedict Anderson became hugely important to people in graduate school in the 1990s. Um, and then in my own uh, interdisciplinary field, we, we, there was really this starting to be people who were thinking about the United States as uh, and its culture and history in an international context in ways that um, that were perhaps new for that generation. Uh, and what that meant was uh, also sort of a, um, a more multilingual or international approach to research itself. In any case, uh, I went to... Um, uh, to Morocco in the in the summer after my first year of my PhD program, um, really out of a really out of a sense of curiosity, I think, um, I, I, and I would uh, I would definitely say motivated um, as much by a fascination with this film, The Sheltering Sky, which had been filmed all through Morocco and Algeria, uh, as well as you know a kind of political sensibility that there was something wrong about how Americans were writing about in mainstream ways. Uh, the quote unquote, the Arab world. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I really, and at that point I traveled, um, just using French and Spanish, which were languages that I felt comfortable with. I hadn't yet started even to learn Arabic. Uh, and I, you know, quickly met up with peers of mine who are Moroccan, uh, peers, um, 
who just the, the sort of embrace and warmth and um, and conversations and engagement that I felt right away, I felt immediately at home and interested to spend more time there. And as as you know, and as I think graduate students, I hope know, um, the choice to do work should really should emerge from a combination of a sort of intellectual and and potentially political commitments, but also uh, uh, there's choices that you make, and I feel like I've made them a couple times in my career. Where, you, where which will have huge and long lasting effects on how you end up spending your life, where you spend it and the people you spend it with. Um, and that was one of those. So I returned the following summer to really uh, start in, intensively studying Arabic. Uh, I returned the following year uh, to live in Morocco. Uh, and at that point I was doing a dissertation in the mid uh, in the middle years of the 1990s. I finished my PhD in 1998. Uh, that was really, I would say, a kind of American Orientalism uh, project, looking at the American writers who had, whether they were literary, Paul Bowles played a role, uh, but it went back to Edith Wharton and, and other writers uh, from earlier decades uh, and, and into other disciplines, especially anthropology um, from uh, many decades of the 20th century and cinema became important. Um, I finished that dissertation and, and, and along the way I had not only gotten much more uh, knowledgeable about and comfortable with uh, the Moroccan literary and cultural and academic scene, which I which I did. Um, and of course, from that point, Morocco became a very central part of my own life and education and friendships and, and the friends that I made back in 1993 or 90, 94 in particular, um, you know, now, of course, are my friends of of almost a quarter of a century. Uh, and some of my deepest and longest friendships. And we've all sort of gone through not just uh, personal lives uh, together, but also intellectual and uh, intellectual discoveries and conversations and collaborations. Uh, so that, that idea of collaboration has become central, not only to my life and academic career, the way I try to conduct it and, and where I get sustenance, but it's also been one of the one of the major ideas that I've tried to explore, uh, particularly in my in my first book. Um, so that dissertation, um, you know, was was finished and and I uh, it, it it had the title of Morocco Bound, um, which I can was happy to say more about. Um, I did end up publishing a first book called Morocco Bound uh, and have and have certainly drew on the material that I was uh, had worked on through the dissertation. But uh, when I finished the dissertation and, and got the degree at the end of 1998 uh, and started working as an assistant professor, um, I you know, I talked to some publishers and found that there was interest in publishing the book uh, relatively as it is. My dissertation committee liked it as it was um, for the most part. And I might have done that and I was spending some time revising it the way I was still in the framework of the first book. Uh, sorry, of the first uh, years in, uh, doing the research, um, and then with the with the uh, events of September 11th in 2001, I found um, almost to my to my surprise and frustration that the kinds of questions that people were coming back to ask me then, um, as if the work which seemed I realized retrospectively seemed to many as being somewhat obscure to think about how the United States had thought about the Arab world. Um, and, and I'll give you a sentence of what I think that book is about. It really 
reoriented uh, the work in in a bit um, in, in a in a sort of profound way. Although at the time I resisted the idea that it should have. So in my first book, Morocco Bound, I really think of that as a cultural history of how Americans came to think about the Arab world or um, the quote unquote the Arab via uh, readings of and and a a combination of cultural history and and literary analysis of some of the major texts between World War II uh, and the mid-1970s. So the subtitle of the book is called Disorienting America's Maghreb from Casablanca to the Marrakesh Express. And the reference to cinema and music and popular culture uh, is not incidental. Of course, they refer to the period of time between World War II, 1942, when Casablanca comes out, until the mid-1970s, what I call the end of the of the hippie orientalism of the anthropologists and young journalists and writers and cookbook writers and hippies who were in Morocco in the 1970s while the Vietnam War was going on um, to far to the east. Um, and and during that during that book, um, uh, you know, in doing the research for that book to look deeply at the ways in which the United Americans, the United States popular culture and literary and cinematic culture had thought about, often fantasized about, um, imagined and represented even in political media, uh, North Africa, uh, and then parts of the Middle East outside of the um, the major uh, locations, um, you know, but but even places like Iraq uh, in cinema and, and journalism was such a such a fascinating and kind of fantastical array of really what you'd have to call a popular American Orientalism um, that when September 11th uh, came about and scholars um, outside of Middle East studies, of course, or religious studies were turning to me and saying, well, this is very surprising, <laughs> um, this collision of this kind of cultural collision uh, that we're, we're seeing and reading about. I was so taken aback that it, it definitely changed my work uh, and made me realize that there really had been a, a cultural history worth, worth thinking about. And uh, this book, After the American Century, seems... Uh, almost as a sequel of sorts to to your first book uh, in many ways and and really uh, only could be written by somebody like you who has uh, kind of processed uh, the region and these kind of cultural products for such a long time. Um, Can can you help us think about uh, some of the key points you're making here in the book, Um, many that come through right in the title? So one, this this idea of the American century which places – places us in a kind of temporal perspective. Um, but then I think probably the more interesting part is this idea of uh, the ends um, of U.S. culture in the Middle East, uh, which refers to the ends of circulation. Um, so can you can you help us think about uh, what's new after the American century? Um, and how, how do we – how can we think about the ends of circulation uh, in terms of culture? Sure, absolutely. First, on the first point that you make, that that this book becomes a sort of sequel, that there there is some truth to that. We um, there, you know, you uh, 
you, you often discover in the writing of a first book the really interesting question <laughs> that you want to pursue um, as your big question. Uh, and as I mentioned in, in finishing that first book, Morocco Bound, which was published in 2005, you know, along the way of what was a decade of, of time spent uh, intensively in the Maghreb, uh, mostly in Morocco, a couple of things were happening. One is, you know, I, one was on the on the topic of a of an American Orientalism or the an idea of representing uh, the Arab world in ways that would have political or cultural significance back to the United States. I found myself surprised uh, at what I, at the sorts of uh, uh, responses or recalibrations among Maghrebi and particular Moroccan cultural producers uh, themselves. In other words, back in the in the 90s and then the 2000s, one of the most powerful prevailing ideas about how cultural representations circulate was something like cultural imperialism, uh, a reading. Actually, a misreading of Said's use of that term, um, but an idea that culture itself, cultural products, representations were a kind of imperialism that circulated around the world. That was the prevailing idea was. What I found, so to speak, on the ground was quite a bit different. I found, and, and this is what leads to this book, which is that uh, in the 90s and 2000s, many Moroccan academics, anthropologists, filmmakers, writers, in fact, weren't necessarily responding with uh, uh, hurt feelings the way cultural imperialism would would imply. In fact, it was a much more complicated way that they engaged American cultural forms. Casablanca, for example, the film, a pure fantasy in, in most ways, or mostly pure fantasy about what uh, Morocco might like be like at a certain point in time, was not considered, in, was not for most Moroccans insulting. Uh, in fact, there was a playful way in which cinema filmmakers in Morocco uh, other lesser kind of cultural producers like the makers of cafes and boy people decorated place were playing with it. Uh, the text was circulating. They were making new meanings of it for their own purposes, their own national purposes. That was the kind of discovery that I only was barely able to touch in the first book. Um, 2005, that book was published and I was uh, lucky enough to quickly get a surge of um, a surge to try this new book, which is namely that I was uh, nominated for and ended up winning a, a Carnegie Scholar Award under the Islam Initiative from the Carnegie Corporation of New York, which basically was allowing scholars um, to to try out much more ambitious ideas um, to ideas that might not find themselves, I would say, in in the in the disciplines uh, or the way that they're working. Um, I was really literally finishing the first book when I had the opportunity to propose a new one, an opportunity. I, I had only begun to think of what was next. So I came up with this wild idea, this wild proposal um, of doing of of looking at precisely circulation. Um, well, let me say more about what that meant. But the wild idea was to to try to do a multi-sided. I had picked four sites um, uh, in which I would look at the way that American cultural products made their way through the Middle East and North Africa. Now, why why would that be, um, and, and what people were doing with them, saying about them, responding to them, um, and making them anew, let's say, in those sites. Uh, originally, the sites were going to be uh, Morocco, Morocco, in particular Casablanca, which of course I knew quite well, um, Cairo, which I knew just a little bit at that point, and Iran, and Tehran in particular, which I knew only from afar. Uh, and that was that was on purpose. Um, 
partially uh, the, and sorry, there was a fourth site, Beirut, which I actually pursued for quite a while in the in the research and then dropped as a site of major attention in the book. Um, so and for a long time, the, sub, the working subtitle included Casablanca, Cairo and Tehran in it. So those were if you look at the book, you know, there's three uh, three chapters that are really not case studies. They go they go look at a little bit more wild than that. But one of them is it is uh, focused on each of those three contexts, Cairo, Casablanca and Tehran. Um, and the idea uh, the, uh, the idea of, of circulation started, you know, emerges out of this idea of what, what what would cultural imperialism, so to speak, or Orientalism look like in the digital age? What had happened between 1990, uh, well, let, let's say from the 90s into the mid 2000s, of course, was that the digital revolution had really kicked in deeply. Um, the arrival and and the ubiquity of the internet, of cell phone technology, of digital technologies uh, on sat- uh, through satellite television, uh, those three examples in particular, and then the arrival of what we call Web 2.0 and a kind of interactive internet by the mid 2000s in the places that I'm that I was living in or studying or traveling to. I had profoundly changed not only life on the ground for people, as it had in the United States and everywhere around the world, uh, but it had also fundamentally changed, I believed or I hypothesized, how representations uh, or which, like Orientalism would work uh, in the present. Of course, it's a moving target uh, to study the, the present and the way that the technologies um, uh, with which kind of you know, dominate our world. I'm talking to you right now via Skype. Not possible. Uh, you know, we, we, we could have talked on the phone, of course, uh, but the, the, the ways in which I can talk to you and communicate with you uh, are, of course, profoundly different um, from what they were like back in the 1990s when I first started spending time in Morocco. Uh, the, the, uh, the impact of digital technologies on questions of the nation, of censorship, of access to materials um, of the way we communicate and network with each other were, of course, profoundly different in in the time that I was writing that first book. Um, And there was a reason that that first book had ended in the mid-1970s, and I only then was able to talk about about it a little bit at that that point in in 2005, which was namely that I believed that the mid-1970s is when what we call in quotes globalization as a as a phenomenon as a cultural phenomenon uh, really kicks in um, and representations such as the ones that Edward Said had written about in Orientalism uh, and then I and then in my much more modest uh, work looking at American Orientalist texts have been looking at in the American context really had to function differently I thought. Um, when we in, we engage with films, uh, television, uh, even reading itself within a different um, within a different context, I went so far as to think of it as a new epistemology that there's a di- an epistemology of the digital age, um, and it's what led to uh, this project itself, as or at least the starting point for this project itself. Now, um, if I could just push you a little bit more about the kind of methodological, because I think that's one of the really significant contributions of the book. Um, 
part of what you set up here in uh, as you kind of work through your material, specifically in your your first chapter revolving around Egypt, is this idea of jumping publics. Um, and I think this gets back to the complications when we think about circulation versus influence uh, and and where the ends of these cultural products uh, land. So uh, can you talk a little bit about this, this idea of various publics that are involved and, and kind of how we should think about uh, moving across this kind of global transnational uh, context in which the, uh, the digital A's has uh, more easily produced? Yes. Um, one of the premises of the idea of a public that has influenced uh, my thinking here is that is drawn in part from the work of Michael Warner um, and is the idea that when a writer or a speaker, um, you might say um, someone who addresses a, an audience, uh, even a religion, even a preacher, a poet, um, when when someone uh, makes an utterance or writing there, they are imagining and calling into being a public um, that they may not know. Uh, that they may not, that must include strangers. So it's related to the idea of an imagined community or, or a, a, a sort of a national newspaper. Um, but that there are, after all, in the in the original idea, that there are limits to even a very large public that one imagines. Um, and so, if you if you think about uh, a Hollywood, the different, you know, the, anything from a Hollywood film to campaign rhetoric when people are speaking in traditional terms before the digital age. Of course, there's a one one would like to think that the audience is is endless and that, that it's infinite. Um, but in fact, that's not really the way uh, creative utterances work. There's some imagined bounded community, maybe bounded by language um, or some uh, some some range of imagination that 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 ultimately does have an end. What happens in the in the digital age, um, in part because of the technologies themselves, is that uh, some of the, the some forms of utterance, some forms of representation, can more quickly make their make, jump outside the publics that are imagined by their producers. Um, now the quickly part is important here uh, because in the if 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 the digital age arrives um, starting in you know let's say the 70s or 80s really the 80s and 90s and and then is really in full force by the 90s and 2000s um, there are, you know it's not as if there wasn't international broadcasting and transnational broadcasting in what we'd have to call the analog age uh, in fact um, the use of audio cassettes, um, for example, um, by the Ayatollah Khomeini is well known in which uh, sermons were being recorded and mass produced and distributed. Um, the Voice of America, for example, uh, that the United States created and, and, and transmitted and multi multiple uh, translations into different languages uh, of, of propaganda, of basically of propaganda, of course, is also something that precedes the digital age. It's not as if Hollywood films didn't make their way around the world. In fact, I talk a little bit about uh, an archive, an illegal archive in downtown Tehran that I was able to visit 
in which films that had been kind of rescued or stolen, depending on on how you want to think about it, from uh, the major Hollywood studios uh, screenings back in the 1930s, 40s and 50s, but had been secreted away uh, in some basement archives in in Tehran are, you know, also are examples of how cinema in, in the analog age did, of course, circulate transnationally. The idea of jumping publics, however, um, brings in the the acceleration and the unpredictability that the, that digital replication, piracy, uh, and propagation really allow for, um, and leads us to all sorts of situations that I find kind of fascinating and spent a lot of time in the book talking about, where uh, new publics, new interpretive, new creative publics um, take up a work in this case, very often American or, or examples from from global cultures that that travel that are chariz- that have some charisma to them and make it their own. Um, one of the examples that has been uh, easiest to to give as an example of this was the example of the dubbings, um, often illegal dubbings, exuberant dubbings of the CGI film Shrek and other CGI Hollywood films uh, that I, you know, encountered in in Iran and uses an example of what happens when jumps text jump publics but it need not be so uh so literal as as that yeah and in the the chapter where you're focused on cairo uh, you do this through uh, a number of different literatures and uh different kinds of genres um can you talk a little bit about how this works out in the egyptian context more specifically sure what happens in the egyptian context um you know well, for, well, there's a couple of things. First of all, I, you know, I, I come to each of these contexts with a sort of a, a problem or a nagging idea here. Um, and one was that in the in the in the Egyptian in the new Egyptian novel of the first decade of the century of the 2000s, um, some of the young novelists who are publishing their first works were doing things that people said you shouldn't be able to do, uh, or Western critics in particular were saying shouldn't be able to be done in the Arabic novel. Um, and uh, for example, not just a not just a bringing together of Amiya or, or dialect um, Arabic with Fusha or more classical Arabic, but also bringing in a text messaging language of very dynamic uh, references to the digital scene, a kind of breaking a part of the language itself. Uh, in expressing what one of the prominent writers of this group called the I've the the um, the sensibilities of what he called the I've got nothing to lose generation. Um, so I came across a novel that many people uh, who were reading in contemporary Egyptian literature had come across, Antakun Abbas al-Abd, or Being Abbas al-Abd by Ahmed al-Aidi, uh, and and read it and and felt that it was breaking a lot of rules. Uh, of course, that that made it me interested in it. Um, and I started following not just Alaidi, but then and writers that were surrounding him. Uh, and it's through a sort of snowballing research of research method, asking writers who they were reading. Uh, found, you know, kind of started to to learn about uh, an entire young scene of of writers, whether they're dialect poets, creative nonfiction writers novelists, graphic novelists and comic artists, uh, filmmakers um, who were, but especially on these in these printed forms, who were speaking to each other, who were influenced by a range of global cultural forms and objects from comic books, spy novels to um, 
to television shows um, from both Egypt and the Middle East, but also the United States and, and abroad who are downloading, um, you know, downloading Hollywood films and and deeply conversing with them. Uh, and then creating a creating a, a, a really a, 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 an exciting new literature um, that was exciting not only because it was dynamic in itself, but it was gathering increasing audiences and they were kind of creating their own public, uh, quite of a large public. One of the one of the nonfiction writers, Khaled Kassab, uh, had a had a column um, in uh, El Dustor newspaper, where, which was um, um Called Dabat Shams, and uh, he had all sorts of of, uh, of young writers who were um, who were who were in their twenties, sometimes even in their teens, who were who were publishing work there, and huge following of readers um, to the point when he finally shut down his, or, you know, left his editorial role. He had a massive protest that he wanted to come back. These are all writers who are who, of course, are publishing. Um, and creating gatherings in the decade leading up to the Tahrir or January 25th um, uprisings. So there was, um, you know, what what made me interested about about that scene was both what it, how it was kind of turning or diver, diverting from the literary scene in Egypt that preceded it, but also that it was a a, a sort of, uh, I want to say a, 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 a literature that engaged with the new transnational technologies, or sorry, the new transnationals and that technologies made possible. It didn't look like a national literature the way we had been taught to read national literatures. Uh, and that made it very exciting for me. Um, now, what happens, of course, with the um, with the uh, the Tahrir um, uprisings and the and the um, oust, the eventual departure of Mubarak, um, is that the role of uh, of digital technologies themselves and social media becomes celebrated in the Western press, which has its own story that I, I try to talk about uh, in, in the chapter itself. So the, um, in, in a way that sort of co-ops the very energy of a lot of the, these writers um, and, and reduces it in a sense to something that was only about the digital. So I don't want to be misunderstood. Um, but really what I'm you know, in, in saying that this was only interesting because of its digital component. Not not at all. It was um, to understand how a much more dynamic cultural and literary scene uh, in Egypt than Western critics were understanding, and often in, in even Egyptian critics, mainstream critics were understanding, but the, in that the, the, the international story about Egyptian literature had seen uh, was happening right there on the ground. And as you know, um, this was in the context in the United States of a deeply Orientalist novel about the stasis in the Middle East, the cultural stasis in the Middle East, it's uh, that, that nothing so contemporary or fresh as we were actually seeing um, could ever be possible based on the then prevailing narratives uh, in American media, even in scholarship out, uh, in, in, um, outside of cultural studies, really. As you move to Iran, you also move more uh, fixedly on cinema. And uh, you think about both kind of specific films and how they uh, revolve around certain publics or forget or don't think of publics that are going to be uh, viewing these films, um, but also more in the sense of uh, how, how do these audiences then think and interpret these uh, cinematic cultures. Um, so – 
where where do the ends of circulation fit in in relation to uh, American cinema about Iran, Iranian cinema as it's received in uh, Euro-American contexts? Uh, what what were you trying to do in this chapter, I guess? So it, it, it has seemed to me, uh, and it seemed to me for some time, that there are two uh, aspects of Iran, Iranian culture, let's say, culture in quotes, that circulate uh, to the United States. Um, and one is political rhetoric, obviously overwhelms um, the second, and the second is cinema. It's It's been true for decades now that the art cinema of Iran has been one of the most celebrated uh, international cinemas uh, globally. Uh, in Chicago, where I am, we've have had, for, uh, I think we're up to 30 years of a, an annual Iranian film festival. There's festivals in Los Angeles dedicated to Iran and so on. Um, within film worlds, much smaller than the, the larger mainstream public, Iranian cinema has been known to be one of the greatest um, for a couple decades now. Uh, and I was interested in those two different circulating aspects of Iran, kind of an image, a me- both of them related to media, of course, one deeply political and caught up in, you know, a, a sort of Orientalism um, and stereotyping and kind of simplification of, of what was being said. And the other uh, in the realm of art. We're speaking this morning, af- the morning after the Academy Awards in 2017, uh, when Asghar Farhadi won for the second time Best Foreign Language Film for his film, The Salesman. Uh, he had won um, uh, for uh, A Separation, which I write about in detail in, in the book, uh, but not only as a text um, that thinks about the questions of circulation, but for the ways in which the discussion of Iranian cinema, both in the United States and in Iran, cannot unfortunately leave the political behind. <laughs> so um, what I did in the case of Iran was was two things. I, I, I my, The time that I, that I spent in, in Tehran was focused on what I call the film worlds of Iran, how it was that people, not just filmmakers and the text itself, what was being represented on the screen, uh, which might be a, a, a more traditional form of, of film analysis, but more how those films functioned within contemporary Tehran uh, discussions about society, about art and about politics. Um, and it turns out that it's well, a couple of things. One is that it's very difficult to leave the political behind, even in the work of some of the most um, a, apparently apolitical filmmakers. Before Farhadi became a two-time Academy Award winner, the most famous Iranian filmmaker in art world was Abbas Kiarostami, the maker of uh, A Taste of Cherry, most famously perhaps, uh, Close Up, and a number of just masterpieces of art cinema, winner at Cannes, and so on. Kiarostami, who just passed away um, last year, uh, made films that seemed would be hard to be called political, in, except in some second or third order way. Very philosophical films, beautiful films uh, that have long takes, you know, where you watch a child run across a field uh, for several minutes. Uh, and Kiarostami became the darling of the art cinema worlds. I was surprised when uh, he was an interview with him in the New York Times Magazine, one of those um, page, you know, one page, 20 questions type of interviews ran in which Deborah Solomon asked him almost entirely questions about politics and political um, filmmaking um, when his films seemed not to be political really at all. 
Um, and it's just one example of how it, it's very difficult to leave behind politics when talking about Iranian, even Iranian art cinema. So this is the question that, that I was asking. Um, at the same time as uh, Asghar Farhadi was emerging and really following in the footsteps of the great tradition of people like Kiarostami and Mahmabaf and Jafar Panahi, um, we, uh, the, uh, Ben Affleck's film Argo uh, was produced and distributed and it itself won an Academy Award for Best Picture. Um, Argo uh, was generally considered uh, in the United States a bit more of a liberal film, I suppose. It began with a liberal prologue that told the story of the U.S. involvement in the overthrow of Mohammed Mossadegh in 1953 in a way that generally in American pop, uh, popular discourse is not told. In other words, a bit, you know, a bit closer to, the, to what we know, scholars know to be the case of U.S. involvement in that overthrow and certainly what Iranians know, have known to be the case for decades. Um, although the film itself ends up being a more conservative film uh, in the sense that it becomes about the heroic uh, rescue of American hostages, um, a, kind of a small, uh, lesser known story that revolved around the hostage crisis of 1979-1980. Uh, so in its content, it's a bit more conservative. Um, but for the most part, in American theaters, it was seen to be a, a film a little bit more left of center. Um, what what I write about and what I was fascinated by was the huge protest against that film uh, in Iran, and not just from the expected uh, expected circles of, say, a more government kind of protest against the film, but really across the board, uh, including people in the opposition in Iran and um, to uh, and, and cultural opposition, cultural left reformists and so on. Across the board, people felt very dismayed about Argo um, and certainly officially as well as unofficially, which, you know, which um, I determined based on looking at a kind of a variety of sources, um, including interviews, but also blogs, Persian language blogs, kind of unofficial uh, media as well as more official responses to the thing. Um, so, so really, to look at cinema in Iran uh, and in the context of circulation was is to see um, both how the films themselves, so important both for Hollywood and for Iran, their own cinema and our own cinema, and now uh, places such as Ben Affleck's Argo or Asghar Farhadi's A Separation, uh, as among other works how they represent um, the very question of circulation out of Iran into Iran uh, for both films um, and to see how that's a very contested place um, and how it might help us to understand the cinema itself differently. When, it, of course, you know, we think of the films I'm talking about are, are films that are projected onto uh, in, in theaters, but it's absolutely the case that most people now um, in both contexts are watching their films not in cinemas but in digital through digital versions whether they're pirated copies or on uh, streaming uh, streaming video or streaming audio whether they're watching them in cinemas uh, or more likely on on iPads or cell phones even uh, and so really we have an older form the feature length film colliding with an entirely different uh, episteme really which is what I'm calling the digital age um, add that that, um, you know, as the more I spent time in Iran and thinking about and talking to people involved with a, a, a more capacious sense of what it means to look at Iran, I mean, Iranian cinema, 
including namely the pirated, uh, redubbed versions of films such as Shrek that I mentioned earlier, um, and then other films that talked about the, from an Iranian context, that talked about the impact of American culture on Iran, uh, the, I really was, I suppose, trying to open up what's already a very rich discussion about Iranian cinema to, uh, to a larger uh, template. And the, the last region, as you, you mentioned earlier, uh, is Morocco, where you have the kind of deepest roots in terms of your own experience. And uh, th- this has one of the, I think, probably the best examples, at least from my reading, of this kind of uh, jumping publics and the ends of circulation in terms of uh, understanding and the ability to, to interpret. Um, you look at uh, a figure named Hamada and his uh, digital production work of pirated material. Um, I, I tried to track some of this down and I was able to find it. And uh, yeah, like your your friends said at the party, uh, I, I wasn't really able to under, understand what was going on here. So uh, can you, I mean, it might be difficult, but can you, can you tell us what is going on with his work uh, and, and kind of the, the limitations and possibilities of uh, uh, interpretation here? In the chapter on Morocco, which is which I had a lot of fun writing, and to tell you the truth, it's one of those times you write a chapter and you really want to write a whole book. Um, so there's there's a number of of, of subsections in it. Uh, you know, one ends up talking about Abdullah the first openly gay Moroccan novelist or openly gay autobiographical Moroccan novelist. Talk about a, a film by a woman named um, Leila Muraksi, uh, who who made a fascinating film about Casablanca youth. That, really got a lot of people upset in Morocco because it had a love scene between a young Muslim girl and a young Jewish boy. Um, but I start off this chapter talking about the impact especially of of digital media and the arrival of YouTube um, in in Morocco and how, how massive a, a, a shift that produced. In the case of Hamada, who I call I didn't really, didn't really know what to call him, so I call him a video pirate artist. He's, he was underground, uh, and in the really in the in the early the first 2003, 2004, 2005 is when he was briefly very well known. I've talked to young Moroccans since they haven't heard of him. Hopefully, the ones who are reading the book will go back and and, and excavate him. But for a while, he was on everybody's um, uh, you know in everyone's conversations. What he did was he took uh, video clips from uh, the internet, which was now becoming, a, you know, now much more accessible in Morocco, um, or through DVDs, I believe, and he would take short clips and dub, uh, fr- often from animated films, especially the CGI, computer-generated il- illustration films. Shrek, again, was very popular with him, and that's how he first became known. Uh, but also other Hollywood films. The Mask with Jim Carrey was one. He would take old Disney films, take these clips, and he would dub over them uh, popular m- music, Moroccan music, or sometimes dialogue in uh, Moroccan Dedija, the Moroccan dialect of Arabic, uh, and make what I guess you might call a digital mashup um, that – was very very popular. Now why? I mean, now here, why? For, first of all, if you watch the stuff, and unless you, 
even if you know Moroccan Arabic, it's if you're not Moroccan, it's really hard to. It takes a lot of explaining what's going on. But more why it was funny. It's not. It's not hard to see what's going on. You have these two texts, one overlaying the other. Um, but the popularity and the fun and the exuberance that many Moroccans felt uh, with this with this material. And I, as you say, I tell in the book some stories about people telling me that I just won't understand it. Uh, but still like, you know, asking each other if they'd seen the latest one, how amazing it was. Um, but th- that exuberance was really interesting to me. I mean, I guess I hypothesized it had something to do with the new, the, the fun that you could have with these new technologies and the idea at that time, you know, now we're talking about a dozen years ago. Um, and the, the ways that young Moroccans, young creative Moroccans might play again with a global culture and make it their own. Um, there, I mean, in some ways, that's what underlies all of it. Of course, the uh, the popularity uh, was all at the expense of legality, and the guy himself had to flee uh, or go underground. He was very nervous about what he was doing. Um, he himself never really seemed to have made much money off of it because everyone was pirating everybody else. Um, and this itself, just the way that the the, the texts themselves circulated now with a different sense of circulation. They made their way around uh, into people's laptops and computers and houses um, and possession at very low cost uh, was is part of the story, too, that there was a, an arrival of new sorts of digital marketplaces, places in uh, in souks, for example, in, outside Casablanca, the rise of this very famous kind of uh, souk called Derbechalef, which is... Uh, a uh, um, kind of a, a digital, you know, a, a digital souk basically outside Casablanca um, was part of the story too. Um, but more significantly, I think, and this is now cultural history of of the recent past, the arrival and use of technologies, not only digital piracy, but now YouTube uh, to take outside forms. YouTube as an American product not just as a technology, but as something that was really created for a different use than it ended up having for all of us, but especially in Morocco in the beginning, you know, what used to, was just a private video sharing uh, platform for people to use, share home videos and so on, very quickly became used in Morocco to make some interesting political interventions to show examples of police corruption uh, and also to show examples of um, you know, kind of non-normative sexualities being practiced in Morocco, things that everybody knew about, but n- both of those um, topics, but nobody really wanted to talk about. And now we're being shown via YouTube uh, and kind of changing the discussion around the country. So that's an example of an example that, as you say, may be um, the mo- uh, you know the the most tangible one of what I mean by jumping publics. Although in some ways. Thinking of YouTube um, as an American cultural product, the software itself uh, is perhaps a bit more elusive than the traditional cultural products we think of, such as films and, and literature and otherwise. So throughout the book, I'm really interested in thinking about the circulation not only of individual products like a film, um, but also cultural forms that become identified with the United States, like Facebook, Twitter, YouTube. Um, certain film formulas, the teen movie, uh, and then superhero comics um, that are a bit more 
uh, abstract than an individual text that you might see. Reading Lolita in Tehran would be an example of something, although I'm somewhat, I'm quite critical of that book in itself, but it gives you an example of a more traditional circulating object, the, the novel Lolita in that case, that people can hold on to. But now we're really entering into uh, the digital age in which it's not really the individual text that is, um, that, that's the thing that circulates, but more modes of being and thinking and relating to one another that the digital technologies and software packages that I've named and many others that I haven't um, are kind of changing the scene quite profoundly. We know that to be the case around ourselves in the United States. Look at the effect of the last of digital technologies and social media platforms on the last presidential election and on the way that we do political that we the way that we discourse around politics in the United States today and yesterday and tomorrow. Uh, that's been profound. But um, but I think we're also playing catch up. We as as scholars of Middle East uh, studies, North African studies, cultural studies um, to understand how profound that impact has been on the cultural production and social organization in the Middle East and North Africa. Yeah, and uh, the book does a, a, an amazing job uh, in this regard, and there's there's lots of great detail, numerous other examples you didn't even mention. Uh, so I do hope that people will go out and uh, take take a read of the book. Um, before I let you go, we we would love to hear what kind of things you're you're working on now. I could only imagine with all the the kind of uh, tangents that you went on in the book, the the the, the avenues you could have explored further. So uh, I'm eager to hear what, what you're working on, what we might expect from you in the future. Well, thanks, Christian. Uh, well, first of all, the book comes out in paperback in April, uh, the beginning of April, late March. So um, people have a chance to, I hope, engage with it there. Um, I'm working on two types, two different projects right now, one of which I'll, I'll, I'll mention. Both of them are books. Um, and that is to look um, is to look at the, uh, that last question I just mentioned, which is the, the change of political discourse in the United States over the 2016 presidential campaign uh, was not only one that led us to a very different kind of politics that we're now experiencing uh, in the United States in the Trump administration. And you know that's quite obvious. Um, but also the ways in which American culture travels around the world um, I think has been profoundly affected by this political campaign. One of the one of the assumptions I make in the book, um, and I question it, is that in the Cold War and the first part of the digital age, consumers of culture in the Middle East and North Africa could negotiate uh, uh, the paradox that American culture might be popular or or have some charisma to it, even while U.S. politics was losing its prestige, to put it mildly, in the Middle East during the occupation of Iraq and Afghanistan in the first decade. That that paradox could be could be managed by people in the region um, by separating American politics, uh, which might be negative for them, from American culture, which might be positive. What I'm really interested in, and I started to write about in just at the, at the end of this book and in a couple pieces that came out with its publication, is how American politics and American entertainment now are coming closer to, to each other. This is through President Trump's uh, unusual form of campaigning, his obsession with social media like Twitter, uh, and the way that the entertainment industry, whether it's the 
Saturday Night Live or the late night uh, comedy shows or the Academy Awards last night is also, even in a, in a critical mode, caught up in presidential politics in a way that it really wasn't uh, before. So I'm interested in the global circulation of that, and particularly in the Middle East and North Africa, how it is that that has a, a, a profound effect on the, uh, the way that people engage with American uh, culture, really, and culture and entertainment, and, and um, as well as politics. Um, right now, I don't see that as a good development, um, that that's happening, but I'm really trying to understand how it is. So just today, I was looking at, um, you know, discussions of representations of President Trump in Iranian uh, uh, popular, you know, media. Um, and, you know, some, it's always, again, surprising what one is finding um, and looking at that elsewhere in the region. So that's that's the project I'm working on now. And um, for the moment, uh, it's it's appearing um, in shorter forms, but I think it'll be a next book. Great. Well, well, Brian, thank you so much. Uh, good luck on that. We hope we can maybe have you back and talk talk more. Thanks, Christian. I really appreciated um, the time to talk to you. That was my conversation with Brian Edwards about his wonderful new book, After the American Century, The Ends of U.S. Culture in the Middle East, published with Columbia University Press in 2015. Thanks again for listening to another episode of New Books in Islamic Studies.